You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. Wednesday, November the 23rd, and brightening up a treat here in TW11 after a wet start. News come through this morning that Constitution Hill will run in Saturday's fighting fifth hurdle at Newcastle and will take on his stable companion and past winner of the race and past champion hurdler herself, Epatant. They will both run for trainer Nicky Henderson after all the talk last weekend. And Nicky joins me now. Uh, Nicky, what's the situation as regards Saturday? Was it a, a difficult decision in the end? No, I spoke to Michael yesterday and we've been umming and ahhing. I think there are several parts of the issue. Primarily, the horse is just very fit and well and ready to go. Um, contrary to sort of quite a lot of people's opinions, um, he is perfectly okay and there was nothing wrong with him last weekend. And you've just got much, much, much better ground. It's going to be on the very much on the easy side of good. It'll be good to soft, softer, which suits him well, not good to firm. It, the question was whether to wait for Cheltenham in a fortnight's time. And to be honest, it, it's extraordinary. This The going down south here has been very peculiar. The last three weekends, we've had fast ground. Cheltenham, Newbury and Ascot. And at the moment, you know, even Keith's... That's why I'm going to Newbury, because... You know, he's concerned that is going to be, you know, he needs every drip he can get. And this could well apply to Cheltenham in a fortnight's time. And therefore, waiting till then seemed a silly thing to do if the same situation arose as arose last weekend. Um, and so, you know, obviously we were trying to keep them apart, but, you know, they've... <laughs> Willie Mullins could run five in a race if he wants to, so I expect I could run two. How do you expect them to run relative to one another? Well, that is a difficult question. And you're going to have Pied Piper in there as well, and the horse that dead heated with Epitant last year, a few Morris. Well, well Gordon, Gordon said to me yesterday that if you ran both of yours, he probably wouldn't run. But that was yesterday. Today's a different day, so I don't know. Well, tell him to, tell him to stick to his thoughts <laughs> they both run uh that is for sure um and so nicky will be going up there as will um aiden coleman to write epitome they're both very well nick you know i've been very happy with both horses um and we'd actually schooled constitution hill over five hurdles this morning you won't see anything quicker in your life um and I say the ground is the most important thing, really. We had to go for it. Um, it was a pity I was trying to keep them apart, yes, but we have not been able to, and it's understandable. Um, does that theoretically mean that you could you could run them again and and do the same thing at Christmas? You know, if they, say say they both ran really well on on Saturday or right up to expectations, could you could you just keep going and and bowl them along together at? at, at christmas as well in the in the at kempton 
Well, it is the obvious way because, as the word says, pattern, and the pattern says, you know, this is the first grade one of the year for them. The second one is the Christmas hurdle. Third one is the champion hurdle. Mm. Um, and in between Christmas and the champion hurdle, there is very, very little. There's a champion hurdle trial at Haydock on the 21st of January. Um, and there is Wing Canton, which doesn't appeal to me as a great track for Constitution Hill, I must admit. Um, I don't think Epitop would mind it, but bear in mind she proved herself over two and a half at Aintree last year. So she could always move for another race. But the contender's hurdle has disappeared, which was a, I've used as a vital part of our preparation for goodness knows how many years, and now they've taken it away. So there isn't much to do between Christmas and, the, and, and Cheltenham, except for go to Ireland on the 29th. And maybe that becomes a possibility. That's the Matheson hurdle, 29th of December. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Would you prefer that for... Which one would you prefer that for, Constitution or Epitant? I don't mind. I mean, you know, let's, let's cross these bridges as they come and let's see how the things go on Saturday. Um, and, um, you know, then we can start to think about whether they come together again or whether, you know, it, it is blatantly obvious that they need to split up. I know. I mean, I know you said what every, everything's been said uh, about the weekend. I don't want to plough that furrow particularly again. But just in terms of Constitution Hill's ground requirements, would you concede that he's not a horse that needs it soft in in any way? You can't be a soft ground horse if you can run a supreme novice hurdle time in three forty whatever it was. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, bear in mind, there's a very big difference between, you know, that was genuinely good ground, as you know, at Cheltenham. They never let Cheltenham get to anything on the far side of good. Although on that Tuesday, as you rightly say, and I did quote this last week, that, you know, you must go on good ground because you cannot do a time like that in soft ground. It wasn't it was soft on the Wednesday. First race on Tuesday must have been really good ground. Now, there's a very big difference between Cheltenham good ground on the Tuesday of the festival and ask it last weekend which and I think the only thing I'd have to say which was disappointing was that as Chris Stickles said to me I'm sorry this has dried out quicker than I thought it would and with which he really should have changed the ground and if he'd, have changed, he'd admitted it had dried out dramatically from Friday but didn't change the ground which would have probably helped people understand why I didn't want to run in our opinion, it was good to firm in place. It's not good to certainly no good to soft. Yeah, I, I, and and I know I, you took quite a bit of stick at the weekend, um, and you got quite passionate on Matt's program on on Sunday. Uh, I, I know you care about these horses very deeply. I'm sure you didn't didn't really mean that that you would have wounded the horse if you'd run him. Well, you well, you know, well, not to say we'd wound him, but. The chances of him coming back with jarred tendons yeah. was huge. And if you have jarred tendons, you've written a horse off for this year and maybe his career. Yeah, you, you sense it's been a, a sort of testing time for a, for a lot of people in the game the last few weeks with the weather as it has been. I, I did note that you normally have to wait until February before 
generally speaking, trainers' stress levels uh, reach reach boiling point. Well, it is, and I just think it's all rather unnecessary. We're just doing the right thing by the horse. It was too quick to run him last weekend, but we are running him this weekend. It's it's very simple. Um, we're just going. We're going to run on better ground, which is great. And it's you know this is a Grade One. The, 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 the one thing about Ascot was that was tremendous prize money for a Grade Two, um, worth more actually. Um, but you know, as you you probably appreciate it, this time of the year, we're not exactly the the prize money issue is 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 great if it's there's lots of it, but it's not what we're after at the moment. It's after the right race, the right way to start his season off, and. Um, you know, I think Michael's quite rightly decided that that's what we had. it was. It, it was his decision and supported by myself. And um, you know, I think it's the right thing to do. Are you going to go? Are you going to go to Newcastle? No, we've got about eight runners at Newbury, so I think I'll stay here. You know, I've never been to Newcastle. I was talking to JP this morning. Um, Binocular, Bouvardier, and Epitant have all won it numerous occasions. I think. The fighting fifth that I've never been, so perhaps I'd better leave it that way and um, watch rather nervously from Newbury. Fingers crossed, the ground at Newbury is uh, not too quick. Well, we hope so. As I say, that's the odd thing about this year is it undoubtedly been the. Um, you say it's early for the stress. No, it's it's late for the ground to come come good, if you like. You know, it, it's been a it's been a nightmare from the from the get-go of the, of the season, even in the early part of the autumn when we wanted to get going. We were, you know, we were a long way behind because of it. All right, Nicky, see you at the weekend. Look forward to it. Look forward to seeing you there, Nick. Thanks. Nicky Henderson there, and that covering off the most important news of the weekend, the clash between Stable Companions, Constitution Hill and Epatant. The new whip rules in British racing are set to be introduced from February the 6th, That's just over a month before the Cheltenham Festival this year. There will be a bedding-in period, which will be four weeks from January the 9th, during which jockeys will be asked to observe the new guidelines, but won't be subjected to the much more severe penalty framework. Um, A reminder of the key points here. The number of strokes permitted remains the same as under the old rules. Eight for jumping and seven for flat. However, there is a distinct change as to how the whip can be used. It can only be used for encouragement now in the backhand position and not in the overarm forehand position. There will also be a whip review committee responsible for evaluating all rides and any necessary sanction or action to increase the consistency of stewarding and to drive improvement in riding standards. And then there's a significantly increased penalty structure And the most controversial development, there will be a disqualification introduced for offences where the whip has been used four times or more above the permitted level in all races. And perhaps the most important issue for now on that is that that will now be determined after the event. So punters will be paid out on the the first-past-the-post result, notwithstanding the possibility of a whip-related disqualification, as is the case in the United States. More of that in a few moments' time. First of all, Rishi Passad's with me today. Now, on the front page of today's Racing Post, jockey Patrick Mullins, with lots of experience at Cheltenham, one of the leading amateurs of his generation, an assistant to his father, trainer Willie, says that this is going to be very difficult for Irish jockeys, who are not bound by the same rules back home, to adapt to as it comes so close to the Cheltenham Festival. 
are we heading for trouble here, Rishi? Is this new ruling workable? And I say that as somebody who was part of the initial steering group who put forward the recommendations, most of which were then ratified by the BHA board. I think they will be workable to a degree, Nick. But as Patrick Mullins has uh, eloquently put in the Racing Post, the danger is, because the the type of action that it is, it's a, it's a type of behavior that becomes part of the subconscious. And if that's the case, it requires repetition. So it becomes something that you don't have to think about because having to think about something in the heat of the moment um, obviously has carries its own challenges. So I suspect that it might be, uh, as Patrick Mullen suggests, there'll be a period of where people will fall foul of it, perhaps with more frequency to begin with, whilst it beds in. And given how soon it's going to come into full force, which is February the 6th for the jump jockeys. It's perhaps a little bit too close to the Cheltenham Festival, which obviously starts on the 14th of March, for it to become uh, something that you do subconsciously. I think the timing of it is awkward, given the fact that you've only got uh, five weeks between when it comes into full force and the start of one of the biggest festivals in the sport, one of the biggest sporting occasions of the year, and the time that racing is going to be on the front page, potentially for good stories. Um, uh, and certainly it, it will it will attract more attention. The sport will attract more attention during those four days of the Cheltenham Festival. If something were to <clears throat> crop up, I would have liked it to be implemented much sooner so that it could have uh, jockeys could have got used to it much sooner for as i said just the repetition in order to make it part of their behavior as opposed to something that they have to do consciously well i think in an ideal world it would have been implemented sooner but i think there've been a number of wrinkles to iron out again which we'll come to in a minute one of those involves well, so just yeah, jumping in so why couldn't they just wait until after the festival well, that's a very good question. That's not that's not really a question that I I know the answer to. I, I was a part of the as a part of the steering group. Uh, I did my bit in terms of, of of policy advice. I mean, it should be pointed out that there were a hugely wide range of opinions on that group, from people who yeah. were out and out abolitionists to people who would have tried to row back on the regulations and, and go back to what we had many years ago. Uh, and and mm. some somehow you've got to try and find. A consensus might not be the right word, but you've got to find agreement of a of a way forward that that encompasses continued use of the whip uh, for encouragement with better and more responsible use. Uh, yes. I, I I rejected strongly the idea of a direction of travel that this was a uh, the idea that you know you somehow this would be lead inevitably to the abolition of the whip. Otherwise, what's the point of having one of these reviews? You may as well just get rid of it now. Um, it's Indeed. just a question of it's just a question of showing um showing the world that you as an industry are 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 responsible that you you want this tool uh, although you believe it to be essential to be used in a in a, a correct and and proper manner uh, and you want standards to be to be high and you want penalties to be appropriate if if the rules are being flouted of course the forehand backhand issue Mm. Um, could never have been brought forward without the expertise on that steering group of two senior jockeys. One of those was PJ McDonald, a senior figure in the Professional Jockeys Association on the flat, and the other, uh, Tom Scudamore, he'll hate me for saying it, but the elder statesman of the jockeys' room over jumps has held a licence for a quarter of a century or more. So Tom joins me now. Tom, why did you believe a backhand only for encouragement solution was 
uh, was a workable one. Some will say some will say it's not. Um, well, I think it is workable because it's you know, it, it's something that has been used before. There have been pre- plenty of people in, in the past. You know, Willie, Willie Carson is a great example. Um, for the majority of his career, um, he only used the stick in his backhand. Um, I remember it was something Dad brought up many, many years ago, in fact, when, when he was still riding, um, that it was something that they were at one point looking into. You know, again, people he rode with, Graham McCourt, they very rarely used the, the stick in the forehand. So um, it was you know, when it was first brought to me and, and, and shown, I thought, I'm not sure about this. And you do a little bit of digging, you go and look at past and, and see... Um, how people have done it before, and you suddenly realise, yes, this is this this is possible. I suppose the key is, what is the what is the beneficial effect of restricting whip use to to the backhand position, in your opinion? Uh, in my opinion, it's more of a, a technical thing. Uh, a lot of people will say, oh, it's purely for aesthetics, but it's not. I believe that in the in the backhand position, um, used correctly, it, it, there's less chance of you using it illegally above the fore, above the shoulder um, and uh, in the in the wrong places that just the, the natural gait of using it in the backhand if you're holding it correctly um, will take out the you know the, the illegal uses of above shoulder height in the wrong place and force um, so straight away those are those, those are three key areas we are working on how how can we avoid those um, situations and I think the backhand um, allows for that. What do you make of the thin end of the wedge argument that's being that's being brought out again this week? That that this is in some way a form of appeasement for people who ultimately don't understand horse racing, never want to understand it, want it banned, want the whip banned, uh, and, and this is simply a way of trying to trying to appease a, a constituency that that shouldn't really have its voice uh, heard within within our sport. I, I don't see it as appeasement. Look, whatever you do in life, you know, it's the old saying, you're going to please some of the people some of the time, most of the people most of the time, but not all of the people all of the time. But I, I do think that you know, racing, we have to adapt. We have to understand and read um, the lie of the land around us and indeed what other, what other jurisdictions are doing. You know, you've seen what's happened in America, what's happened in Germany, what seems to be happening in France. You know, you can't be um, deaf to, to those things and again in our own uh, political environments you know Nicola Sturgeon is looking for independence you know, what are the Scottish nationalists if they if Scotland becomes independent you know what what will they see for the future of racing so you've got to be ahead of the ball and you've got to understand and appreciate that you know the lie of the land does change and, and you've got to be open and aware to that and I think this is what the the steering group has done um and you know i'm, I'm actually you know, looking through the results and you know, the results will only come when, when, it, when it's implemented to, to see how well it works but i i genuinely think that this is something that that will help racing and, and you know certainly um help it its future i, I suppose that the key the key question to conclude is how difficult is it going to be for jockeys to adapt we've we've seen patrick mullins today saying it's going to be very difficult for the irish jockeys at the cheltenham festival given that's at the end of the betting in period they could find themselves in line for big penalties because they're simply not used to um to not not using their whip in the forehand and it's not going to be on the statute in ireland either um you're a very very experienced horseman 
you understand what you go through in a race. Is it going to be difficult for people to adapt or not? It's going to the change is always hard for people to accept. Is it hard for people to adapt to? You know, I've been very lucky during my career. I've ridden in Ireland, I've ridden in France, and I've ridden all over Europe. And part of being a professional and part of you know, achieving what you want to achieve, you have to respect and adapt each jurisdiction. What was acceptable at Cheltenham isn't acceptable at Totoy. You know, so you have to. You know, there's no point to me going over riding around O'Toy saying, "Well, they're all wrong." You know, you have to. You know, part of part of being, uh, I say, a professional, a part of being successful, you have to adapt to, to, to all these things. And I'm sure, you know, the the, the Irish lads when they come over and lasses when they come over, um, certainly will. Well, one such Irish lad who came over and was the most successful festival jockey of of all time. It is Ruby Walsh. He's now one of the sport's most respected broadcasters and commentators. Um, I I asked him what his overarching view of these of these regulations was, and and whether his opinion had had changed at all since he he left the saddle. My opinion generally hasn't changed, Nick. I was always of the opinion that a number was a mistake, that a number made it too restrictive, and. I firmly believe and still believe that there are times when two or three uses of the whip can be too many, but when you put a number of seven on the flat, eight over jumps on it, riders weren't breaking the rules at two, three, four and five, but to your eye they could be. And I was always of the belief that eight or seven, just an exact number, was too restrictive. And there are times when nine or ten was acceptable but there are times when four five and six weren't so i think the biggest issue has always been the exact number tying people down to what they had to do or tying and tying stewards down to what they had to do as well so uh, i think that was the biggest mistake am i pro or anti it being in the backhand no if look if that's what progression requires so what it's now in the backhand everybody can use it the same way but i was always of the belief that the number was a mistake and i suppose looking at the way they've had to go about the disqualification with the number owing to the world pool and the effects it would have on gambling around the world it probably shows you the number was wrong in terms of the use of the whip in the backhand to the forehand you think that riders will adapt to that easily I think they will. I think they will. Um, I do believe at times certain riders, everybody's a different shape, different people carrying different injuries, different use of their shoulders. Some people will have to go higher with their hand to make sure that they do catch the rump of the horse. Um, But yeah, it's definitely less uh, forceful. It's the the only word you can say for it. And um, it will serve as an aid to encourage a reaction to encourage that flight that's what you're trying to do with it with, with the whip anyway is just ignite the flight reaction so it should enable you to do that it's ultimately what's a response is the response a horse going faster or is there a, a response a horse just not slowing down so it's no different maybe to you being in the gym with a personal trainer and without uh, how many reps are you going to do when you're on your own versus compared to having someone standing over your shoulder making sure you do the 20 reps yeah you'll do the ball so you're, when you're trying to encourage a horse to sustain its challenge that is probably where the backhand comes into it more so on older horses uh, like older people you get used to things and you probably don't get the same response on younger horses of course you get the response you want 
and and you know in in terms of in terms of the the securing the future of the of the of the whip as a as a tool of encouragement ruby to what extent do you think the way that this new legislation has been framed will do that i think it does show that racing horse racing is proactive towards people's views regards the whip and what it's used for and will you all convince everybody that you're just not beating horses of course you won't you will not be able to convince people as long as you have everybody as long as you have a whip that is the case but i think for anybody with an interest or who is willing to listen to and take the views of the professionals that this is what it's used for it is used to ignite the flight reaction and to sustain the effort that all athletes give because ultimately that's what resources are is athletes so when you're looking at an athlete digging in for the last 200 meters in the, in the 800 meter event and you can see the grit in their face that is ultimately what you're doing with a whip at the end of a horse race is encouraging your athlete to dig in and give you what it has um, and to achieve what the horse can ultimately achieve so um, will you convince everybody no you never will like I don't know of any other sport where there is such a limit on how hard you can try and that's the grey area for horse racing. It's the people that have previously gone too far. Yeah, they do deserve to be to be disqualified. But I think as whip rules have been introduced and generations have moved, the generation that are currently riding, maybe with the exception of Frankie or even Ryan Moore and a few of that generation who have lived through a couple of generations, but more so over jumps, they've all learned to ride with whip rules and the generation coming behind them will only have ever learned to use it in the backhand so i think as time progresses and generations move on i think the whip is is being used less and less anyway ruby walsh there now i mentioned a few wrinkles that needed to be ironed out ruby mentioned whirlpool early on in the interview 17 whirlpool days in britain last year all generating up to a million pounds each for the race courses concerned it may be in part that, it may also be in part down to a deputation on behalf of the betting industry that disqualifications, because of egregious uses of the whip, four over the permitted count, will now be administered well after the fact. Uh, so the result will stand on the day, even if it's quite obvious to anyone watching that the disqualification will ensue, the result will stand on the day and that punters will get paid out on the first past the post. Rishi, what do you make of that? Well, um, as a as a as a punter, as a racing fan, and as someone who works in broadcasting in the sport, and therefore the image of the sport is quite important, I'm very concerned by the idea of uh, a jockey uh, breaking the rules on the day, but the disqualification taking place further down the line. Uh, the result, for example, if a jockey infringes the rules um, where the whip has been used, you know, four times or more above the permitted level, um, if that's infringed on the day, but that disqualification comes further down the line, I think that's a major issue. It may not be so much of an issue on, you know, a Monday, a wet, wet, wet day at Weatherby, for example, on a Wednesday. Um but for the major races, if something happens at Royal Ascot in a great group one race or a grade one race over jumps uh, on a big day at the Cheltenham Festival, the Grand National winner, the Derby winner, um, what happens if that horse wins that race? But 
you see it on television as a racing fan, as a punter, uh, and as someone broadcasting the sport, and you concern that that jockey may have infringed the rules to the point where in, I don't know, when it will be, a week, two weeks, three weeks further down the line, that horse is likely to be disqualified. Um, I think that is a very awkward situation. Um, and I'm I'm not entirely certain that it's, I mean, obviously I know the betting industry are happy with the fact that the disqualification will come further down the line and there'll be no issues about getting um, getting the betting turnover going on the on the actual day itself. But I, I think that's a that's a concern for how the sport will appear uh, on the very biggest of days. Yeah, and, and at the at the end of the first consultation process, uh, I think it was it was the case that that would have been decided on the day. But the gambling industry have intervened and said that mm-hmm. it is it is better for for the for the sport as a whole from a from a gambling standpoint for for people to be paid out on a first past the post result, notwithstanding the potential. For a for a disqualification because of egregious overuse of the whip, I understand. You know that when you when you read the quotes of people from within the betting industry, I understand why it makes sense to for them to have the the, the decision uh, first past the post on the day and then deal with it further down the line. But I, I think for the image of the sport, which is more important, I think it's dangerous for a sport. You know. <laughs> to to not be certain at the end of a day whether the, a result is going to stand. If you're further down the food chain, if if a horse has been um, the the subject of a, an egregious whip offence because a, a massive gamble's been landed, well, yes, the gamble still landed, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You can still go exactly. and collect, but the betting industry is happy because they say that the BHA has listened and has taken that on board and has gone forward with a. With a plan that will not compromise the finance of the, of the industry, you know, is the priority just about the betting industry being uh, satisfied that the rules that will come into place will not affect them, or is it entirely financial, or is it a question of this sport needs to do what is right, uh, what is right by obviously itself, its competitors, the people that are licensed by the sport. But also by by the racing fan, you know, the racing fans have have to be the one. The the people who get up every day and enjoy the sport, they have to be satisfied that what they're watching is satisfactory. And I don't believe that that particular element of the whip review is satisfactory. Well, over the last couple of the weeks here on the podcast, we've been looking ahead to the ROA Awards, which take place in London on the eighth of December. Looking forward to hosting those once again. I'm very pleased today to be joined by the president of the ROA and the chair of the Thoroughbred Group, who's been much in the news lately, Charlie Parker. Charlie, why is this an event that is is very important to your organisation, not not simply just a, another excuse for racing's great and the good to get together and slap each other on the back? <laughs> well, it um, it really celebrates um, the owner's contribution to the sport. It it uh, highlights obviously the fabulous horses that have achieved so much during the year, and it gives us a chance to uh, sort of to recognise other other people in the industry. Um, and it's it's a it's a I think it's a terrific event. Last year we were you know there was lots of COVID call offs. Uh, we we carried on and and it was a really fantastic night. We were able to um, honour Sir Trevor Hemmings, who had recently passed away, um, and it, and also celebrate some some really fantastic sporting achievements. So, it's a lovely way to end the year. 
and you do attempt i think i think if there's one if there's one aspect of it that i enjoy that you do attempt to enfranchise more uh, of, of the sports ownership insofar as it's not simply handing out awards to Godolphin Coolmore, Godolphin Coolmore on the flat, nor is it simply a question of honouring all the Mullins horses that have scooted up the Cheltenham Hill over jumps. It's a bit more, a bit more layered than that. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, this year, I mean, we've got a um, special achievement award, which has got a number of nominations in it that, that range all sorts of different horses and, and, and races that that aren't dominated by those people you've you've just name checked um each category's got its um nominations but people can also vote for other horses as well and um i think if you look back over the past you know there's been uh, i think egalitarian is probably the word you know there's been lots of different owners syndicates uh different types of ownerships um that have that have won awards and had a fantastic night as a result so yeah, I mean it, it is it is for everybody. Um and it's also a really nice nice party as well. Charlie, you, you've been much in the news lately as one of the key parts of creating racing's new governance structure. How are you feeling about this now a couple of weeks in? Do you do you feel that this is workable? Do you feel that the the thoroughbred group and the horsemen have got um, representation at, at these uh, these committee levels and, a, and at board level that is is going to give you the the part in shaping racing's future that you want. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've, we we had a, a BHA board on on Monday and um, reading the pack beforehand. Um, it, on the one hand, I was feeling very excited and 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 optimistic for the future, um, especially from our position. And then the, on on the other hand, I was sitting there reading thinking gosh we've got an awful lot to do and the team at the BHA has got a massive amount to do um and, and in a different way than it's been operating previously so you know it's it's I think it's fantastic that we've got where we've got to but it's only the starting gun that's gone off um of a race that is going to be very difficult um and uh so yeah equal measures of of feeling feeling excited and 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 pleased but also some big dollop of trepidation about what what's in front of the bha team um and the industry as a whole but specifically the team at the bha okay what do you think is the team at the bha's then if, if it's if it's all on them what's what's the biggest responsibility on their shoulders now what's their single biggest challenge in the coming months well i think the the uh, creation and, and, and molding of a strategy that's fit for the whole industry for the next say 10 years and and that encompasses not just regulation but most importantly commercial aspects and the generation of revenue to support the industry and keep its place as a as a premier um, racing and bloodstock business in the world against a, a really difficult changing environment in terms of other jurisdictions and their funding structures so it's 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 it is a big big job um and you know in essence we're asking the same team that was doing the the, the no less difficult but slightly different job sort of before that monday and then suddenly we're asking them to to go do this so you know obviously there's recruitment going on and there's a lot of work going on but that 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 is the the, the real task at hand um yeah i was gonna at i the was same, gonna, 
yeah Sorry. i was gonna say it's so, sort of um fresh fresh ideas required same faces in situ and you've just perhaps aren't answered the, the question i was going to ask which is how important is it that you get different and new people on board in order to try and execute some of these changes well it's 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 vital and the, the support that the uh, commercial committee so basically the industry through the commercial committee can provide to um the team the executive team and the board is what makes this so critical in terms of our participation but at the same time you know what what isn't talked about is there is a huge project going on at the moment at racing digital which is effectively rewriting all of the it and systems processes that that british racing has in its in in, in its in its capabilities and that's ongoing at the same time so it's 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 two exceptional projects probably bigger than anything british racing's ever attempted to do both at the same time in in a world full of high inflationary pressures and cost of living and fuel prices so yeah i mean it's 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 a big job and we've all got to help um help achieve what i think again you go back to what i said at the beginning is a really exciting opportunity has the ROA now got a clearer sense of purpose, direction, identity than it did when you when you started? Um, I like to think so. I think what we have done is we've we've um, got involved. Uh, the ship left the port, um, left the harbour, and and we have um, you know encountered some pretty pretty rough and tumble times, but we've we've played a massive part in this governance we played big roles in the ownership strategy that's embedded into what Alison and her team are doing you know we've we, we are across a number of areas um punching well above the weight in terms of if you look at the the team we have so um you know i'm i'm very proud of what we've achieved um in in incredibly difficult circumstances and um, but we need to because if we don't do that, who is going to do that? Um, who is going to help frame frame the future with the executive team at the BHA? So it's critical that the ROA plays its part along with the TBA and, and the licensed personnel and the RCA and their members because we all have to help and support Julie and her gang. Charlie, thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. All right, let's head to Hong Kong now with important news ahead of the Hong Kong International Race Day. Here's Jim McGrath. This morning, the Hong Kong Jockey Club announced the fields selected for the four Hong Kong International Races on December the 11th. And despite all the difficulties involved with shipping horses and horsemen to the Far East, they've attracted 24 overseas entries. Pretty impressive including Aidan O'Brien, who has Order of Australia in the Hong Kong Cup, which is worth US dollars $4.3 million. Order of Australia finished sixth in the mile two years ago. And Aidan has three in the Hong Kong Vars, which he's won three times. He's got Broom, Bolshoi Ballet and Breeders' Cup turf runner-up Stone Age. As expected, Japan have a big contingent coming over. They have five in the Hong Kong Cup to take on rising champion Romantic Warrior and three in the Hong Kong Mile, trying to prevent Golden 60 from carrying off his third mile trophy. But the most interesting entry in my book is Saffron Beach, the multiple Group 1 winner trained by Jane Chapelheim, 
who has a place in the 12-runner Hong Kong mile should connections take up the invitation. And that all revolves around what happens in the Tattersall sales ring in Newmarket when the daughter of New Bay goes under the hammer at the Mayor's sale next Tuesday. Saffron Beach missed the Breeders' Cup, by the way. She wasn't quite right. But Jane assures me the filly is now spot on for Hong Kong. She's ready to race and she hopes she can persuade the new owner or owners that they should allow her to send Saffron Beach to Hong Kong. And Jane says you would be keeping the same work rider, the same feed, the same trainer and jockey with a horse ready to go and the race in only two weeks' time. It'll be interesting to see if she can pull it off. This week, plenty happening in Hong Kong. Alexi Bedell is out for four weeks with an ankle and shoulder injury sustained in a horror fall at uh, Sha Tin on Sunday. Karis Teton is back riding track work, but he won't be on uh, Romantic Warrior in the Hong Kong Cup. That's been announced already. James McDonald retains the ride there. And rumours persist that Joe Marrera might be back for some of the Japanese horses in the internationals, but that's unconfirmed. More on that soon, I hope. Today at Happy Valley, we've got eight races. It's a pretty good card. Race six, number nine, Jumbo Legend is my best of the day. Trained by Casper Founds. This horse is going for his third course and distance win. And he was pretty impressive last time. He's still got plenty of uh, ladder, plenty of uh, rungs to climb on the ladder in Hong Kong. He's got plenty of upside to him. So race six, number nine, Jumbo Legend to beat seven solid impact and take those in a tote swinger. Later on in race eight, I like number four, Zone D, who's ridden by Zach Purton, who continues on his merry way. He's uh, got 44 wins on the board already this season, well clear of the pack. That's all from Hong Kong this week. I'll have more for you next week. Well, it's been a while since we checked in with the Godolphin Flying Start and the latest cohort who started the course that takes them round the world on this very comprehensive bloodstock and horse racing training course. Uh, latest cohort started in August. Jamie Smith is with me today. Uh, Jamie, whose background was not necessarily in, in horse racing, but more more in another sporting endeavour. Jamie, tell me a little bit more. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Nick. Um, it's a pleasure to be on. I wouldn't have the the most conventional racing background, as you'd say. I played quite a lot of cricket as a younger boy. Um, I would have been fairly obsessed. I managed to get some really good opportunities. I did some great travel. I managed to play in South Africa. Um, you know, I had some great memories and great friends. And for, to be honest, for a while, I was I was pretty set on 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 being the world's best cricketer. But through no no hard luck stories that just didn't quite work out, and I only really had one other one other hobby, if you like, and that um, for its sins was was racing, going horse racing, um, and I pretty much just started from from the bottom right through. Nick, to be honest, I was just a stable lad to start with, and then got a couple more chances, and you could say that I'm I'm pretty bitten by the bug, so um, that's what gets me here today, really. So what what was the way in? So you, you you decided that although you were clearly a very good cricketer and a very promising one, for whatever reason, you weren't going to be in the next test team. So how do you then end up? How do you then end up sliding into into a stable? Who did you contact? How'd you how'd you get in? Very very basic actually. So um, I well I'd finished university at this point, and it obviously was a bit in the midst of COVID and. I was looking at local stables near to me and I've, I luckily came across um, 
Peel Hall Stables, which is run by William Kinsey. And he kind of let me put my foot in the door. He was in based in Chester, which is about an hour away from myself. Um, I just used to go in three, four days a week. Um, Will just kind of taught me the road and his head lad there, Derek, he was fantastic. And, you, you know, they give me basically a chance to, to show how keen I was. And from that, I got some really good opportunities. Um, I started working for Bloodstock Agent Alex Elliott for a while, and I was just kind of topping up my experience with different um, facets of the industry, really. Um, and then luckily from there, I managed to get onto the National Stud course in, in Newmarket, and that kind of just propelled me to a new level, if you like. And the hunger from then was, you know, was just burning away and I've been learning ever since. So it would be the it would be fairly basic, but Will Kinsey and, and Alex would be would be big mentors and myself, yeah. Yeah, we know Will quite well on the on the podcast. He pops on on quite a bit. We were hearing about some of his um, some of his mares that he he done well with the, the familiar Limony and, and horses like that last week. I, I was interested because he, obviously he was a he was a trainer. He's now more into producing young stock and uh, and and the breeding game. Was that your sort of trajectory as well? That you were you were in it for the racing and then started to see the mares and foals and started getting into into that side of the business. Absolutely. I think it kind of captures you. I didn't know what to expect when, when I got there. I know Will does a lot of spelling for people and there's a lot of older horses there. But I think when I went there and saw, you know, his mares and foals kind of running around the fields and, you know, he's talking about plans for them. It did kind of get me get me fixed in, in the bloodstock type of world, which probably led me to contacting Alex, actually, in the first place. Um, but everybody loves working with mares and foals and you know it was it was kind of a chance I couldn't turn I couldn't turn down in the end going to the national stud and kind of furthering that but Will would obviously have a wide a wider experience and he would been training as well and you know he kind of liked he kind of showed me that kind of letting nature take its toll um for young stock and how good that how healthy that made them um was kind of like it was kind of peaceful and it was it was good you know I enjoyed it um and I felt kind of set on that, and that's kind of where we are now, actually. So um, I was very happy with with my time there. Yeah. And you're you're not from a, a racing background, particularly. A, a lot of people who end up on National Stud Course and and the course you're on now, the Godolphin Flying Start, have been have been steeped in the industry. Do you feel suitably included, uh, Jamie, or or have you ever felt like a bit of an outsider? I couldn't have felt more included from the get-go, to be honest, Nick. People in our industry quite like people that are trying and people that love the game. We're all here, obviously, because we love we love horses and also we quite like, love the people that work with the horses as well. Um I've never I've never felt excluded in, in any way. I've worked with some great people um in the stud side of it. I've worked with some great people in racing too. Um and I've always felt part of the team since 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 the get go. Um, you know that was even up north. I did some time in Malton uh, with Nigel Tinkler, and I was well included there. I've done time in in Newmarket, and I just think the people are brilliant for that. I wouldn't I wouldn't have had any any stories myself, Nick. No. So in terms of your own ambition now, obviously you've got this this couple of years to to really sort of shape who you want to be and and how you want to go in the industry. But if I were to ask you now where you see yourself in in five years time where would it be it's difficult because obviously you, you want to leave your ideas at the door because we do get given so many great opportunities as you know nick um but i love the game i love racing um because i recently spent time with nigel tinkler in 
in Moulton on in the training kind of facet of things. And I was hooked by that as well. Um, I know it's not the easiest trade to, to to kind of get into and be successful at, but I think you know I've given a great opportunity here to kind of hone my skills. And if you, you know if I could be if I could be in a training rank of some kind in the next five ten years, that would be that would be the dream. Yeah. You heard his name here first, Jamie Smith from the Godolphin Flying Start. Um, could be the next great trainer, Jamie. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks to all my guests today. Rishi, still here. Rishi, you've got something for me for this afternoon. Um, the only horse I was interested in having a bet was at Weatherby, and that is a horse that was slightly disappointing at the end of last season. But Adramel for Stan Shepherd and Tom Lacey, the, the, obviously Tom Lacey team in, in good form at the moment, a drop in class for a horse who ran at the Cheltenham Festival and Aintree as well, and both times disappointed. Um, but prior to that, he'd been on a good run of offences. So Adramel to defy top weight in the uh, Peter Beaumont Memorial today at Weatherby. Um, obviously, as a, a fan of one of his finest horses, Jadami, um, uh, I will definitely be watching that race. All right, Rishi, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Wednesday, the 23rd of November. We'll be back again to do it tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.